So, hello and welcome to another episode of Warrior Diplomacy, your favorite international relations podcast. This is your host, Aramis Sinke, coming to you from Brussels in Belgium. Today, we will talk about arguably one of the most important issues in the realm of international politics, at least in my humble opinion. We will address the so-called practice of information warfare, or as we will call it today, information operation. If implemented successfully, such operations can cause civil unrest, lead to the resignation of national elites, incite civil war or worse. You may be familiar with one application of such operation or another. They are commonly known as this or misinformation campaigns, the Russian involvement in the 2016 US presidential elections and the Brexit votes are prominent examples. In today's episode, we seek to explore how this issue has evolved ever since. Who are the most powerful information operation actors in international relations and what measures are implemented to counter their actions. To delve deeper into this highly interesting topic, I'm joined today by one of the leading, leading experts in this field, Mr. Carl Miller. Carl, thank you for being on the show. From where are you joining us today? Hermes, everyone, hello. Yes, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm joining you all from the wintry, uh, increasingly autumnal skyscapes of London. <laughs> Great. Now, before we will get into the first section of this show, I would like to briefly reflect on Carl's bio. Carl is an experienced digital researcher, author and international speaker, interested in how technology is changing society and politics. In 2012, he co-founded the first UK think tank institute dedicated to studying the digital world at Demos and has been its research director ever since. He writes widely on tech and society, including for The Economist, Wired and The Telegraph, as well as The Guardian. In 2018, he released his award-winning book, The Death of Gods, which is, by the way, linked in the show notes, uh, The Death of Gods, The New Global Power Grab. That's the full title, published by William Heinemann. And now frequently, talks to audiences around the world about what changes in politics, society, media, crime and warfare means to them. Now, in the first block of this podcast, we will learn more about the most powerful information operation actors and how they are changing the world today. Then we will look at the other side and explore what is done to curtail their actions. So, Carl, first of all, can you briefly define how information operations manifest themselves in international relations? Well, they're actually probably uh, one of the most defining characteristics, characteristics of them is how unbelievable difficult they've been to actually define. And they have this whole kind of molten overlapping series of definitions and ideas and words used to describe them. But it's still actually, to be honest, a very confused thicket of different definitions, Aramis. So you, you mentioned some of, them, some of them already. So fake news was probably one of the earliest definitions, you know, and these were kind of these commercially motivated 
kind of online news pieces that were literally trying to ape fake news to get clicks. You know, some of that was coming out of the Balkans and that was kind of first at least seen widely during the 2016 presidential elections. You know, and then it kind of evolved into disinformation and misinformation, then influence operations. The platforms of another definition kind of coordinated inauthentic behaviour. Sometimes we say platform manipulation as well. Sometimes we might say violative content. Um, The one I've liked the best, though, I think is the one that you've used the most, uh, and that is um, information operations or information warfare. And the reason for that is that I think it reflects best what unites a really kind of muddled series of different behaviours and activities. And it's really a mindset. And the mindset is that information... um, joins air, sea, land and space as a theatre of war. Not a tool of war, I think a space that war happens within. And that means that the way it manifests is that people will try and manoeuvre in that space. They will try and um, seize attention like a form of territory. They'll try and change basically what we encounter, the information that surround us, for exactly the same reasons as you do any manoeuvre in air, sea, land or space as well, which is ultimately behavioural and attitudinal effects. That's why warfare is fought. Um, that's uh, why force is used when it is. And that's also why information warfare is waged. Um, it's to have behavioural and attitudinal effects. And, and these campaigns or these operations, these individual examples, are done with that in mind, ultimately. So now that we are aware that there is a space of warfare, when we think of the actors acting within this space, who do you think are the most powerful information operations actors in the world, especially if we look at it from an international relations perspective? Um, Russia is a buzzword frequently used here. Would you say that it is a fair assessment that Russia is the most powerful information operations actor in the world? Well, as a researcher, one of my jobs is to is to come and tell you just how little we really know about these kind of phenomena. And that, that's a really important thing for us to begin on. So um, certainly digital researchers, people like me, you know, we spend a lot of our lives looking at online behavior. That might be individual examples of accounts doing stuff, individual messages. Maybe it's large patterns, you know, that we've we've tried to draw out of, you know, stunningly massive data sets. It can be either. But the one thing that we very, very seldom actually learn is who is genuinely lurking behind activity that we think, think is suspicious. That's called attribution. Uh, and attribution is something actually that if you're not a state and you're not a platform, you should very, very rarely do. And you should do only very tentatively. So we see operations all the time. It's kind of quite hard sometimes to miss them. You know, there's so many different examples that have been written about by me, other think tankers, by other researchers, by the platforms themselves, by tons of journalists. Um, but but who is behind that? We often don't know. And and I think it's a... And now I'm moving away from like what the data tells us necessarily to a bit more about just what I think. I think it's a tangle of lots of different kinds of actor. Um, the barriers to entry, obviously, to do information warfare are very low, much lower than doing a kind of physical kinetic form of war. And that means that actually the, the, the actors that do it can be much broader. So you mentioned states, definitely states. 
like states have been looking at information warfare, redrawing their operational doctrines for decades now. They were some of the first kinds of uh, actors to become interested in this. Um, Russia's a buzzword, but but this is much probably more widely waged than simply Russia. You can look at the Philippines or Malaysia or um, or Saudi Arabia or Qatar. I think every major political party in India during the last election was had had inauthentic networks removed by Facebook and named at the time. So there's, this is being done all over the world, both for, and I know we're going to talk about this, geopolitical advantage, but often for domestic repression as well and control. But then joining states, the other main actors, I would say, are probably political campaigns. So consultants or groups that are basically trying to win political power, um, extremist political mobilisations as well, um, sometimes simply disaffected individuals, you know, uh, do information warfare or platform manipulation. Um, and then we've also seen the growth. This is a pretty new trend over the last couple of years of like for profit groups. So people doing this, um, basically selling one kind of service or another um, to anyone that's willing to pay for it online. So so lots of different actors. I think we often assume it's and, and obviously they'll all bounce off each other. So we might see states paying for services from private actors. Um but probably the most important message there is very important not to assume we know who is behind this. If we now focus on the role of states and um, if we consider the role of impact, do you think that or would you argue that there is a would you assess that there's a possible way to say this state can potentially unleash the most impact? Um Yes, um, I think um, tentatively you can look at um, the kinds of capabilities that state might have created. So th these, these, you know, traditions and capabilities don't come out of nowhere. In many ways, what we're really looking at is are states kind of making sense of much longer traditions, capabilities and tradecrafts in the digital age. So for Russia, you look back at reflective control, you look back at the Cold War, you know, and for many states, you, you, you can trace what happens today all the way back to, say, political and psychological warfare fought during the Second World War, and even earlier back to kind of theories of total war from the first, um, and sometimes even further back than that. You know, I mean, states have been dealing, you know, thinking about population, populational control on the home front for, 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 for centuries now. Um, I think what is very difficult, though, is, is you can look at even, say, budgets and you might be able to look at, say, military formations or some technologies. And often, obviously, there's information that's sometimes leaked, sometimes spoken about. What's hard is to see how the rubber hits the road, though, and what that really means in terms of capability in the digital world. And there, I think, much like the, analog the analogous capability, cyber offensive operations, cyber warfare... Um, it's very hard for us to kind of judge and rank states. I mean, generally speaking, of course, we know the states that spend a lot on geopolitical capability. And we know the states that have the money to spend it. And you, you would imagine there would be some kind of correlation between um, spending and capability. I would say, though, one final interesting and useful distinction is probably around the, the nature of the polity. So liberal democratic states versus autocratic. Um, I think like... The limiting factors to information warfare are, are not always technical ones. They're also legal and reputational ones. And of course, in Brussels, in the UK and across Europe, like we've got quite strong safeguards to try and control what liberal democratic militaries can properly do 
in terms of interfering in media information systems very rightly and I often think like permission to operate there is what holds those those militaries back yeah and I think it's it's a highly interesting discussion with with the west and its role in the whole information operation circus because we often tend to look at this uh, from a victim perpetrator perspective we say here in the west okay there's russia there's china and other malign actors um, attacking our information spaces and um, you have just mentioned that the west on the other hand does not have the the same abilities the same tools due to the institutional setting but what i think is interesting is also the the russian perspective for example in this because they would claim that this is absolutely not true. And they would argue that the West does have a lot of power in this information space. Um, what they would argue is that, for example, the West has these large uh, international broadcasting networks. Um, I just um, looked up a number here in the fiscal year 2023. The agency heading U.S. broadcasting efforts globally had a budget of 1 billion US dollars financing popular channels like Voice of America, Radio Liberty. And then there's other popular channels in the West like uh, Germany's Deutsche Welle or the BBC's World Service. So would you, what I would be interested in, do you think that it's really such a major distinction that you have the West that is not capable and not institutionally able to influence? Or is this actually a really a contested issue where you have uh, the, the great powers um, who have a, a lot of tools uh, to, to influence, the, for example, the global south and each other. Well, I mean, look, f firstly, there, 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 of course, is information warfare capabilities built by Western states, you know, and, and no kind of uh, kind of no dispassionate or neutral analysis could say could say the opposite. I mean, and we've seen liberal democratic states do information operations in the past. But I, I do think there is an important distinction between the kind of relationship between media and a state when that state is either a liberal democracy or an autocracy. And so like the relationship between Deutsche Welle and the German government or the BBC and the British government is entirely different from the relationship between RT and the Russian government. Like, and sometimes that distinction is quite hard to really kind of get across to people unless like you've been in one of those institutions, you know, because what, what you'd really love to show them is, you know, the, the raucous editorial meeting in the BBC to discuss what should really be leading the news that day, you know, or the internal investigations into, you know, um, uh, you know a, a, a possible corruptions within the British government or possible, you know, um, uh, uh, kind of injustices conducted by the British army. That is very different as a as a kind of as 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 an institutional relationship than what you will see with RT and the Russian state. Like RT, and I know this because this is the kind of thing I research. Their vessels, their channels, and their outputs kind of very closely echo the geopo ge the, the the geopolitical talking points of the Russian state. There is no genuine internal investigation. There is no criticism of the Russian state in any kind of meaningful way. And there's no real departure from um, uh, kind of Kremlin talking points. And that means, that as it, you know, and there is, there is a relentless interest we're trying to expose um, Western decadence, Western hypocrisy, uh, and, um, and the, the hollowness of Western values. Um, 
So, you know, like, yeah, like we, we, we fund, you know, um, we fund kind of uh, uh, media organs in the West. But I think that is to show and to kind of represent how important a, a genuine free and powerful press is to protect the kind of societies we want to live in. And that is that is being aped and in a way being mimicked by autocracies. And it's easy to make something that looks like the free press, you know, with a ticker tape running down the back and people that masquerade as journalists. But you're not you're not a journalist if you're being given your editorial talking points from a from a military and then you and, and then you then you repeat them. So um, it, we're in a, it's a kind of it, it, this is a kind of important moment, I think, because, um, you know, I think in many ways, like as information warfare has emerged, we're, we're, we're all trying to work out, you know, it, it's like many things, actually, I wrote, I wrote about in Death of the Gods, that book you mentioned at the beginning, where, you know, all these new areas have emerged, and it's actually really unclear what the rules are now. So information warfare has emerged, and I don't think we have really a kind of set, kind of well-codified kind of series of rules of war. And so all states are trying to work that out differently. Um, but, but uh, and, you know, I, I don't think we know in the West what a kind of legitimate use of information warfare would be um but i think it's very different from 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 an autocratic government and and i think kind of drawing false equivalences is is easy to do and it's rhetorically done all the time but when you really dig deeper i think you you find very very different realities in in many western states uh, we see the also the tendency to draw down on these investments for example i think the republican party um, for example under donald trump they for sure had their initiatives to uh, limit the budget of the U.S. broadcasting services. If you were an advisor of a Western government, would you tell them that these broadcasting services are perhaps the, the best tool they have at hand to counter such um, threats from auto autocratic states? Well, um, I, I would certainly try and convince governments to... I mean, you're completely right, by the way. And at the same time as we've seen, you know, information warfare erupt across... Well, and real warfare erupt across uh, Ukraine and Europe, we also have been reducing um, uh, UK government support for the BBC World Service, um, uh, which I think is a, a massive shame. And yes, I absolutely would try and um, convince uh, uh, a kind of the UK government to try and reverse that because... It's not like it's not like the UK. You, I mean, if you ever listen to the UK World Service, it's not a kind of unending series of vanity stories about the UK or its government. But it's an extremely important source of independent journalism in many different languages for people living around the world in information environments that are much more contested than they are in the West. And where often there are lots of other, you know, where free press actually doesn't necessarily flourish. So I think it's really important. And it's always been the BBC World Service, for instance, is a massively important source of news and, and analysis uh, and learning about the world for people. Um, and I think it's a, it's a huge shame when we cut back on that sort of thing. Um, I don't think it alone um, is the is, is, a, is a kind of either a kind of um, solution to or a prevention of information warfare. Hopefully we can, get, we can dig into why, um, but um, I think it's in and of itself an important thing uh, and a very good thing and, a, and a, an important contribution that liberal democracies make. And let's straight dig into it. Why isn't it a good solution to information warfare? Um, I think that the, the main reason why is um, that information warfare influence operations um, doesn't equal lies or disinformation. I think they're very often overlapped with each other. 
So we very often think that the way in which all of this works is that, you know, you've got some evil person out there that kind of spreads a lie that people believe and then change their mind about the world. But that's not really, I mean, there are a million ways to influence people. And there are all these other kind of opportunities for an influence operation to work, which have nothing to do with explicitly lying. Like simply making one fact more visible than another fact is a great way of influencing you. Um, uh, as is um, telling you things you already think are true about the world and then making you anger about them and, and guiding that anger in a certain direction, recontextualizing the grievances that you have, speaking to your sense of identity and belonging. You know, these are all huge motivators to action. In fact, actually much more powerful really than a kind of rationalist evidence-based argument often. And the people that conduct sophisticated influence operations know this. Um, they, they know that there's no need. I mean, I, I haven't interviewed many people that have done influence operations in my life, but the people that I have, you know, they always say, you know, Carl, you know, we don't try and lie about the world to get you to change their mind. We tell you stuff that you think is true. Um, so um, I often think that the kind of problem then is like, quite importantly and dangerously misconceived. So we conceive of this as a, as a problem of truth and lies, and it's not. It's a problem of hidden influence. And that means that simply, you know, and mo most of our responses have been about either introducing more truths, trying to make truths more visible, or trying to kind of provide better information to allow people to navigate around the lies digital literacy, fact-checking, except, you know, um, good journalism, all important, but not fixes to information operations or influence, um, illicit influence. Um, and I think we often feel like we're protected somehow when we're not being lied to. And in fact, actually, it's when we're being told things we think are true, that's when we're most vulnerable. So what is then the, the perfect solution? Or I know perfect is a little exaggerated, but what could be a, a potential solution here? What I would think personally is the education sector. When I learned at the university about conspiracy theories, I learned that if a person is confronted with a conspiracy theory without any prior knowledge to it, there is a high probability that this person um, will believe at least an aspect of the conspiracy theory But if a person is priorly informed about this phenomenon, about the potential effects, then the conspiracy theory is not as successful. There is a dramatic increase in, in the potential success of the conspiracy theory. So what I would assume is that if um, we invested in the education sector and people learned about the overall phenomenon, then we could do a lot to, to curtail these uh, operations. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tempting supposition and, and it's probably not true. <laughs> so, uh, I, mean, I mean, I spent a year um, hanging out with the 9-11 truth movement. I mean, the first pamphlet I ever wrote for Demos was on conspiracy theories that the conspiracy theorists didn't like very much at all. So I spent a long time engaging with them, um, trying to argue with them at times. And um, I think I learned two things. Firstly, at least the conspiracy theorists that I met and got to know were better educated than normal people. Uh, many of them were university academics or students, um, certainly very interested in the world around them and, and in learning about it. I never really saw um, conspiracy theoretical belief to be a function of ignorance. Um, secondly, um, they, um, uh, I don't think I convinced a single one of them, um, even though I spent a year trying to give them more information, better information, send them links. Um, 
I, I learned that it was as much to do with friendship and empowerment. I mean, it's very empowering and very fun, I think, to be a conspiracy theorist for them. You know, they spent their weekends going to conventions and, you know, working to wake us up, the benighted sheeple from our kind of, you know, silly slumber. You know, and it, it gives a lot of meaning to, 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 to be in a position where you can see this kind of shadowy government plot to control the world and you're only one of a very small number of people that can see that. I think that's, 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 that gives you a really strong motivator to get out there and do something. So I think in many ways, actually, hidden influence... Well, firstly, hidden influence operations exploit, use and connect with conspiracy theorists a lot. There's definitely an important overlap between the two. But I often I, I, I do think that, that there, is, there is a lot in, in, in what we understand about conspiracy theory belief that actually tells us just generally how we're, how we're influenced. You know, that this is a really this, this is much more to do with how we feel than how we think. And the response probably isn't. In, in either of these problems to just introduce better information. Um, I think there's, there's, there's kind of two kind of responses that I, I, I think, or bodies of responses I think that are probably worthwhile to, to think about. On the individual basis, um, I think we, the, there are things we can all do. So we need to slow ourselves down online because um, hidden, you know, influence operations exploit our speed. You know, we need to avoid the way that platforms serve us up information we need to avoid virality and virals all of that can be gamed we need to lean away from metrics number of retweets or number of likes and so on as being kind of proxies for authority probably most importantly we need to calm down our own sense of outrage because it's probably outrage and moral indignation that get triggered the most by influence operators Uh, and ultimately treat our information diet like a diet. I mean, it has health consequences for us. It's very important that we we don't consume garbage online and we don't just wait for the information to find us. We proactively go out and find the information that we want to find about the world ourselves rather than just passively scrolling into new information. Um, but then also there are more collective responses out there that we need to think about as well. Um, if I was a government or maybe a civic societal operator, or maybe someone running a a startup, I would think about responses, um, especially in a liberal democracy, you know, we are going to lose if we fight information warfare with more information warfare. Like we as liberal democracies lose out doing that. Um, We don't want to militarise information spaces because we gain the most from them. Um, Instead, we need to find asymmetric responses to really target the worst people doing this. There are reasonably small number, I would say, of professional, sophisticated actors that probably conduct the most harmful information operations around the world. Really the ones that successfully start mucking around in elections or targeting minority groups, whipping up anti-migrant hatred, that sort of thing. These, their lives need to become less comfortable uh, we need to sanction them, they need to be on no-fly lists, and we need to start looking at criminal and consumer rights legislation um, to uh, to go after their, them and the interests that they have. Um, and even in some cases, I think, look at um, kind of national security legislation, especially when these people work on behalf of uh, autocratic intelligence agencies. 
That's a great way to reach to the next section where we'll talk about the, the responses from regulators from the platforms themselves after the sound. In this second segment, we explore what is done to combat information operations. First of all, let's explore the role of the social media companies. Many people remember that back in the days, Meta CEO Zuckerberg pledged to US Congress that the freedom of speech must be protected, rejecting any anti-disinformation initiatives. Later on, Meta took a different turn. It removed Donald Trump from the platform. And a couple of months ago, he was allowed to come back to Facebook and other social media giants. Now, considering the approach of these companies today, what do you think is their approach to information operations? And are they successful in combating such actions, at least to a limited extent? I know there are very good people working in lots of these platforms that do their very best to identify and clear information operations off the platform. Um, I think there's been a number of cases now where we've seen, sadly, like reductions in that staff. Um, and, um, and, you know, really, the way I've often seen this dynamic is that there's always a kind of big, sometimes a war, sometimes a tension within the giants. On the one hand, you've got kind of, you know, safety and integrity and legal and policy folks who do actually want to implement changes to make these platforms safer. That might be clearing stuff off like enforcement action. It might be changing the way the platforms work, introducing friction, for instance. But then you've also, on the other hand, you've got like revenue and growth and people that basically see those interventions as costing money and ultimately reducing the size of the platforms, which is not what they want. You don't, if you want the platforms to grow, you try and get rid of friction. You don't add it. And those, so there's, there's been this kind of conflict of incentives, like rippling in all of them. Um, and I, I think, sadly, what we see is that Profit-seeking private commercial entities with fiduciary duties to shareholders are not the right kind of vehicle to manage those conflicting incentives. So um, often the activity, I think, will be driven by, say, reputational concern. So like things like um, political exposure or media exposure. Um, and, uh, and, some, and as we've seen, when... Um, big economic conditions uh, seem to swing against, well, all of us, but including the platforms, they'll then um, start reducing staff, as has happened in a number of platforms now. Um, and that's why, really, thank God, ultimately, we are moving away from a world where we will necessarily need to simply beg and prevail on the platforms to make these kinds of decisions for us. In Europe, you know, you've got the 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 um, Electronic Markets Act, Digital Services Act have just come in. We've just had the Online Safety Bill turn into an Online Safety Act here in the UK. So we have a new law too. Um, it's going to be a while um, for all of this to shake out, and I don't I, I don't really know if I'm honest with you exactly where influence operations and information warfare sit in the kind of landscape of harm as that will emerge and be you know and be supervised and be looked at by regulators. But I certainly think that things like electoral interference 
you know, or hate speech towards minority groups or, you know, deliberate um, amplification of, 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 of toxic wedge issues within a given nation state. These are, have to be areas that regulators are now going to look at. And, you know, and, and they, will, they now have statutory powers to cause the platforms to um, take d- various f- forms of enforcement action you know, that, that, that they think is sufficient, not the platform think is sufficient. And that, that's going to be difficult. Like, it's going to, it's, it's hard, it's, it, these are hard determinations to make. How much is enough? How much should, should the platforms spend? You know, how do we reconcile um, uh, the desire to have, to protect online spaces with the desire to protect freedom of speech? These are all difficult accommodations, but they're now ones that democratic authorities increasingly are going to be doing rather than um, private American companies. Before we get into the regulations itself, I would like to ask, can you draw a comparison between the platforms, like other platforms where you think, okay, these are actually really good at curving down uh, information operations and others are worse? not thinking about like the fringe platforms that exist, for example, for the extreme right, but looking really at the biggest like Reddit, Twitter, X, however you want to call it, Instagram, Meta, whatsoever. Well, my favorite approach is actually Wikipedia because um, it's completely different from the other platforms. And, uh, you know, unlike the others, doesn't, you know, has an entirely voluntary uh, team of, uh, of, of editors and administrators. Um, who run like really capable and s- such impressive um, kind of enforcement operations themselves, layers of AI, um, sock puppet investigations, a whole kind of user powers um, regime. Um, but ultimately, the reason I think it's so impressive is that it's, it's held, you know, I mean, Wikipedia is also a big target, um, even if we don't discuss it as often as we will Meta or YouTube. Um, and but it's being defended and held together by people who do it out of the sheer love of what Wikipedia has managed to achieve, not because they're receiving a paycheck. And that, to me, you know, in the face of, I can say, you know, sometimes very very scary um, levels of abuse and threat being directed at the administrators and editors who do do that enforcement activity on Wikipedia, many of whom have to stay anonymous. Um, when they talk about these kind of things publicly because they're worried about the threats that can be angled against them. Um, and I, th- I think that alone is, is an inspirational story. And anyone listening to this, you know, they might be interested in influence operations. You don't have to wait until you're hired by Meta to, 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 to get involved in the struggle to confront this. Become an editor on Wikipedia. You know, learn from the, from the editors there about how they try and seek these things out. Help them build tools to to find it you know uh, and and get going anyone can do that and if we go beyond wikipedia and look at the, the major traditional social media platforms can you draw a comparison between youtube and um, twitter and uh, meta no um for because because these platforms are insufficiently transparent to allow us to make any kind of proper empirical comparison so Platform platform data availabilities uh, are uh, mean that um, it's impossible, really, for us to draw any kind of representative data set from any of these platforms. Therefore, we can't make any kind of platform-wide um, propositions around how much is either on there or how much has been taken down. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, it's a comparison I would love to make because I think it's, that's, that's of profound public interest uh, and something which is very important to move into a regulatory regime as well. But I, 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 can't, I can't, as a researcher, really, uh, stand up here and just give you a kind of, you know, top of the mind kind of ranking. I, I don't think that's my job and, uh, and uh, I don't think I, I can do it based on firm data. But that's um, maybe a good way to get to the regulation aspect of things because one of the provisions of the Digital Services Act by the European Union is that transparency among those big social media platforms is increased. So when we look at um, this first aspect from the regulation perspective, do you think that this will help you as a researcher? to find out more about information operations and to curtail them one day? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, provision, uh, provisions around uh, research and data access, to me, are absolutely the crux of so much of this. They're more important than really anything else. Um, if we can't have data, then we don't know where the problem is, how big it is, who it's targeting, what it, what's it, its impacts might have. We don't know anything. Um, and yes, you're right. There are there are powers now, both obviously for regulators to um, require platforms to hand data over to the regulators, which is great, and then also to create APIs for researchers. How that pans out, though, is anyone's guess. I mean, I don't know. Um, we haven't seen these uh, new data provisions actually practically come into into um, force yet. So um, I don't have any more data than I did um, a year ago. In fact, I have quite a lot less. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what these APIs are like. We'll see how much data they provide. We'll see what t conditions and licensing agreements will be around the data. I think there's some concerns there that the platforms will create a kind of series of legal barriers towards the data being used in ways which are effective to platform accountability. You know, uh, assuming we can navigate around all of that, yes, it will be very, very useful and extremely important uh for those provisions to be that, that that those provisions were made and that they are now hopefully going to be um affected and if we take a more wholesome approach towards uh, these uh, legislative uh, initiatives concretely the EU's digital service act and um the UK's online safety bill right bill act act, act. now it's an act now it's right an act. um what what's what's your opinion on on these uh, initiatives What do they fall short of? What's perhaps something that, that's great about them? No, well, I mean, I, th I think probably people that have listened to my answers up to now will know what I think about this. I mean, they, they have their critics and they, they have their problems. But I mean, the, the big picture is that they're unbelievably important pieces of legislation. Um, I mean, I've been calling for this kind of law for 10 years. You know, it's taken 10 years really to go from a world where we were asking the platforms to please just do a bit more through to one now where there are, you know, legally enshrined responsibilities that they have and enforcement powers for when they fall short. Uh, and that's very important. And it's, 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 a new, it's a new age we've stepped into now. Um, and one where I think we'll continue to try and improve the, those laws. We'll try and, you know, I mean, there's, 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 there's lots and lots of open questions still, you know, um, what the online harms really are, how they should be defined, um what the requisite enforcement actions are and so on you know and, and and not least you know we've got very big platforms niche platforms are they going to comply are they not loads 
But th- this is now, we now have a, a kind of a tree trunk that we can add branches and take branches away from. You know, we have that kind of core basis in law, which where, where we have agreed that, that there are responsibilities that didn't exist before that law came in. And I think that's, that's massively, massively important. Um, it came two years too late, from my opinion. I think a huge amount of social discord, polarisation, um, uh, ethnic violence around the world has been probably caused as a result of these platforms not being put into a proper regulatory context until now. Uh, but um, I'm very glad that it's in place from this point on. And as a final aspect of uh, potential initiatives to curb down information operations, I would like to address the work that you have been involved in. You are co-producing tools which can detect information operations by processing data and identifying certain patterns. How crucial is this strain of research in the fight against information operations? Well, I mean, I would say it's pretty crucial. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, importantly, you know, I'm a part of a team of um, developers and technologists that have largely, as a team, we've been working on this together for 10 years, um, that, that are dedicated to building, basically to try and use emerging analytic capabilities, especially around natural language processing and AI and machine learning to try and detect these things for civic societal researchers. So um, we've kind of long believed that um, civic society is a really important part of this puzzle because it's civic society that can often advocate for laws to be changed and can advocate for action to be taken and can work with the media to expose this and work with the platforms to stop it. You know, that kind of almost the glue between all of these different other actors in society but they really need kind of the technology to make all this happen, you know, and that technology can be expen- really expensive. A lot of it like wasn't aligned to these kinds of needs, like it was drawn from like marketing and advertising. Um, it's constantly changing, of course, because the opportunities change as all of these underlying technologies get better. So that's where we've tried to sit, really, like constantly trying to develop new ways of doing it. Obviously, the problem that information operations itself constantly changes. And so the ways in which it can be spotted change, too. So We've kind of tried to sit in the middle of all of this, trying to keep up with it as best we can. New data sources, new analytic capabilities, new tradecraft for methods of, of the bad actors, and then try and make those tools available to the civic societal members that, that are trying to, trying to ultimately go out there and try and spot it all. Our final segment takes a forward-looking approach, probing into the future of information operations. Carl, what is your overall evaluation? Will it get better or worse? Who will gain the upper hand in, when it comes to information operations, actors, their regulators, and then researchers like you trying to curb down on them? Mm. Well, um, I, I, the the tradecrafts will inevitably become more sophisticated for sure. I mean, so people doing information operations will have new ideas. They will use more powerful technology. They will build better processes to do it. They will better integrate the technical with the psychological, with the social. You know, it's a human technology ultimately, and it will, you know, and it will develop. But I'm actually uh, kind of a bit of an outlier perhaps here and that I'm actually quite optimistic about the future um, because um, 
you know, this has become in five years, maybe it's transformed from a kind of geeky think tanker kind of niche research discipline to, to be now like one of the, you know, one of the most visible um, uh, kind of um, major international issues that we're grappling with. There are summits on this. There are working groups. There's new ideas. There's thousands of students that pour in with all these great new things that they want to do and solutions that might work. There's a, there's a ton of talent and energy that's being thrown at this problem. Um, in many ways, it kind of reminds me like the years after 9-11 and counterterrorism, where that field became com- completely transformed. That was the context indeed that I kind of started my professional life in, in working in counterterrorism. And it, I feel like counter-influence operations is, is, is the equivalent of that now. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll see a kind of similar process. Like the problem won't go away, but it'll become better managed will create kind of more resilient information spaces and societies gradually over time. We'll develop a more formidable toolkit to pursue the bad actors and to levy costs and risks against them. You know, and maybe, you know, in some cases, we'll also be able to find ways of kind of getting at the root problem and almost like kind of stopping the drivers of it. So, how do we kind of declare peace in information systems, you know, and and, and kind of demilitarise information spaces? Uh, maybe we'll even get there. I don't know. But but I, I, I do think that it is, you know, like any societal threat, really, it's important not to see it as this kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, kind of overwhelming boogeyman. It's not. It's a it's it's just a it's a new risk or it's an old risk that's taken on, you know, some some new clothes. Um and we're 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 just in these early years now of working out how to respond to it properly um and how to blunt its effects on us all. Um and of course there are many brilliant podcasts like the one you're doing now that that can kind of connect listeners up with it and and and, and spread awareness of it. You know, and and that is also really, really different to what it was like five years ago, where no one even had heard of this sort of thing and thought it was kind of a kind of mad, shadowy world that you know that they they that they'd never encountered before. Nowadays, I think most people probably have 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 heard something about you know disinformation campaigns, probably, and and that they're they're out there and you know what they might be trying to do. I'm glad you're having such an optimistic perspective on this. When I look at the political landscape these days, I think that we are certainly at a at crossroads and uh, it's crucial that we step up our game in, in this regard. Um, but it, it's, yeah, as, as we've discussed, a, a very complex issue. But in the end, um, I'm very happy that we can leave our listeners with this um, optimistic approach to this topic. Um, thank you, Carl. Thank you for joining our show today. It was a pleasure to listen to you. I, I learned a lot as usual. And if you are interested in learning more about the dynamics um, in the digital age, check out Carl's book that I've mentioned before, The Death of Gods, The New Global Power Grab. The link is provided in the show notes. And what is also provided in the show notes are the socials of Carl. So you can follow him on LinkedIn, on X, Twitter, and um, yeah, stay updated in this very important issue.